what are, is there an aspect of the design that will make someone grind just because the game is just that damn good? Now, you could kind of call BS on me because I'm talking about switching from, you know, graduate student people who have life tasks and other things to do, not playing Portal to. Um, I asked a bunch of seventh graders if instead of doing fraction worksheets, they wanted to play Minecraft with me. <laughs> hey, kids, you want sugar? Yeah. Want some candy? Like, I mean, come on. If you're watching on YouTube, please like, subscribe, and leave a comment about the episode. And if you're watching on Spotify or listening on a traditional podcast platform, please follow, rate us five stars, and leave a review if you would be so kind. Thank you. Welcome to the Wait I Know You podcast, season two, episode 14. My name is Nick Rounds, and I will be your host. My next guest has been a UX professional for almost 10 years. She is currently a senior user researcher at Spotify, focusing on machine learning and data science. She's also previously done quantitative research for Comcast and conducted research and analysis on games at Zynga. When she's not conducting extensive research on user behavior, she's at home petting Great Danes and being Italian AF. Maria Cipollone. <laughs> Wait, I know you. How are you today? I am well, Nick. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. Happy. Uh, well, they don't know what we're filming this, but I'll, I'll okay. say happy Friday. Happy Friday, y'all. I'm here to bring you on today to talk about user user research, UX specifically. Um, you and I both know this like the back of our hand, but yes. the people listening might not actually know anything about UX research. So um, can, to set some context here, can you give me the elevator pitch of what user experience research is and why it's important to every company, regardless of what type of product they make? User experience research is dedicated to researching the human elements that help design good products. Um, that's the elevator pitch, but it involves looking at emotions, usability, successful tasks, successful goal, meeting successful goals inside a system. Can I find my movie? Can I battle that boss? All that stuff. Cool. Um, so what made you passionate about pursuing UX as a career and what are some of the built like what, what got you started on that path? Sure. So in 2012, I was in graduate school and studied children's media literacy and in particular loved had like super fond memories of Sesame Street. Um, I am that generation slightly in between Xers and millennials. I'm 42. I think we're often called the Jordan Catalano generation because the cast of my so-called life is I am exactly Claire Dean uh, and Rudy Huxtable's age. <laughs> I, anyway. like to call us a, I like to call us a Star Wars, Star Wars generation because um, it's 77 to 83 typically. Yeah. We, we, what are we? Like, I, I don't like to answer the phone like a millennial. Um, I'm afraid of phone calls like a millennial, but I also have no desire to post that much on social media or like share just even that impulse to share <laughs> what's right. happening with me. But anyway, 
Um, not to rabbit hole in that direction. Uh, so in 2012, I said to my professor, you know, I'd really love to make children's experiences like Sesame Street or like gaming or anything like that. And I got an internship with a small boutique R&D firm that uh, evaluated websites and we were doing some work for the Sesame Workshop. And the person I worked for at the time said, can you evaluate the UX? And I was like, what? But I was smart. And instead of asking that, I think I might have Googled it. And I think I probably started coming up with stuff like it's much more advanced now. But at the time, it was mostly based in human factors, engineering and usability. Um, and there were a lot of government sites that uh, were based in human factors that had really derived from so many different directions, but but notably designing instruments for uh, pilots and airplanes. Um, and then how that, you know, also like pulling from like ergonomics of office wear and, and stuff like that. And then also anthropology and ethnography. And I, I was like, oh, I am studying to be a PhD. Like I know how to do research, but I was so interested in the fact that this research would notably help somebody with an experience, especially a mediated experience. Um, so yeah, I interned and then got hired as a consultant to help build a tablet um, for PBS Sprout, which at the time was based in Philadelphia, and they did build the hardware for their tablet. And I'm blanking wow. on, yeah, I'm blanking on what it's called now, but I remember helping them do all the specs and thinking about things like children like to use things in landscape and even hardware stuff like it should be rubberized for little kids who drop it um you know and it was just a it was just a branded tablet and and they needed help sort of searching the android uh google the android space google play store really for aside from the preloaded sesame workshop or pbs sprout material what else would they do so i started was to understand yeah sprout channel cubby is that it it's the cubby. You got it. You're good. It's called the cubby. Thank you for finding the, that or, or somehow remembering it. <laughs> oh, I didn't remember. I Googled. That's, I that's, figured. that's my secret is that I'm here to help you. <laughs> Thank you. That's always your secret. So, yeah. So <laughs> I, you know, I, I started really getting interested in the fact that, you know, experiences had to be designed with someone in mind or someone's you know, when you think about children, like their dexterity, you know, they tend to put things in landscape, they can't drag and drop stuff, you know, just just being like, oh, yes, there's a human factor to this um, was really how I got involved. Um, and after consulting, that's when I got my first job at the Z. Um, but I'm going to pause for a second and see if there's anything. Yeah, you're, you're jumping ahead. So what are some of the biggest challenges that you, you've had to face when the, within the UX space specifically, especially when you're first starting out? Um, I think that it, first of all, when I think about starting out at Zynga, you're in a corporate environment. So you're there, you know, th coming from this really altruistic space of like making toys for kids and um, thinking about gaming for children. That's a really... How do I say this properly? That's a space where business goals are definitely considered, but because it's a group of people that are under five, people are very heart driven. <laughs> so there isn't a lot of, there's a lot of care and concern that's taken with the target audience, um, more so than adults. Um, so I think one of the transitions that was really kind of hard was going from that researcher mindset of like, I'm doing great things to like, I need to uncover what's needed to design this thing well, but I also must very much pay attention to business impact. 
Um, and it's funny now at this point, like nearly 10 years in, I'm, <laughs> you know, I talk to junior researchers and they're like, well, I really want the time to do X study. And you're like, yeah, no, you don't want time to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Just you waiting know? to dreams are crushed. Yeah. And it's not even so much like dreams are crushed. You have to be realistic about what system you're operating in. I mean, right now I work in internal tools, so I can be kind of slow and, and methodical, but I can't stand on ceremony still. You know, I, you, you've got to be aware of, you know, in particular, we talk a lot about at Spotify that a lot of our internal tools are designed with our uh, machine learning engineers who, you know, have the most basically FaceTime in the product, the people that are recommending you music and, and playlists and podcasts. And, you know, there's other people who bang on about how problematic that is. And yet, at the same time, those that's the biggest portion of machine learning engineers of the company. We have to be realistic. Those people make the company a lot of money. <laughs> so, yeah, so we have to be real about that. It's kind of like whales, right? Yeah. Um, I mentioned the Great Dane in the intro because I knew there might be a Great Dane while we're talking, so it should be fine. But she otherwise would be sound asleep. But of course, because we're trying to talk, she has to bark at some ghost somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Spooky. Okay. Um, so you touched on a you touched on a UX buzzword. Actually, it's not just a UX buzzword. It's a it's a tech buzzword in general, which is machine learning. Um, for for the layman, can you expand on what machine learning is? And I guess without re revealing any trade secrets, uh, how does machine learning apply to Spotify or other companies in general? Sure. So machine learning, I would essentially say is that you're basically taking insights that you might have learned from data science about how something is modeled, um, you know, either a relationship like a correlation or a predictive model that you've sort of uncovered in the data science space. And then you're automating it and training a computer to do it with massive amounts of data and in an automated way. That's essentially what makes an algorithm. That's a huge part of Spotify's uh, product. Um, and Spotify truly believes in ML and supports ML incredibly. It's a great company, actually. I don't have any really bad things to say about working for Spotify. But in general, machine learning impacts the product because it, there's so many, what you see, recommender systems. Um, you see just sort of personalization around the artists that even pop up. I mean, localization is a big consideration for something like Spotify. They, they want to make right. sure that they're germane to the market that they're talking to. So makes a lot of sense. Um, and ML stands for machine learning. <laughs> yes. Well. I'm sorry. I said ML. Yes. Get, Thank you. Nick. No, I'm, I'm trying to focus things through the lens of, I have no idea what Maria is talking about. Please walk me through the bare minimum of what the yeah. hell you're talking about. And, and, and in the name of the user that a user researcher is always supposed to be the representative of, please push me to be more um, plain language with my language. If something doesn't make sense. It's all good. It's just more of a, I like to put on my, my, uh, if you have to explain UX to an eight year old, like what are the things that are going to confuse them or be like, you, you scare me lady and just walk away. So, um, I don't know what you're, <laughs> you're scared me, mister. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and to be honest with you, there are domains of ML. Like I'm really at an early level myself. And sometimes that's good for me as researcher because I'll remain unbiased and I'll, ask them to sort of educate me. And then there's times where I'm, I, I need to sit down and actually understand what I'm studying. 
And I guess I should expand on where the eight-year-old, uh, explaining things where the eight-year-old comes from. Uh, so in game design, it's typical, especially for like features, is that if you're pitching a new feature and you can't explain it to an eight-year-old, then you can't explain it to your own team. Which is to say, if you haven't gone out of the tech jargon and like have been able to tell people exactly like, here's why you're going to want this and back it up with data and everything else and not just because you feel like it, it all that stuff's super important. So yeah. um, speaking of video games... Uh, so you've done UX in multiple genres, uh, video games, websites, TV, and now music. Um, and again, without giving it's away any trade, what? Say that again, what a sorry. News of a career. <laughs> Just touching every form of media except for newspapers. But what are you going to do? That's next. <laughs> no, you love Spotify. What are you talking about? I do. Um, see, yeah. Um, so how does UX research differ across those different mediums? Um, and what are some similarities as well? So as a PhD in media and communication, I'm going to remind you that the plural of mediums, medium is media. <laughs> Thank you, Nick. I, I feel like it because I wasn't sure to call you doctor or not because like the PhD thing is always like nefarious. Oh, and yeah. I, I feel like a jerk now because I didn't drop the fact that you. No, no, don't drop it because in these days and times, like, oh, oh, I mean, there's so much emergency stuff going on literally with people's health. And you be like, what can I do? Be like, I can remind you about the plural of medium. <laughs> it's, it's a personal endeavor. I was just messing with you. Um, right. so, uh, how does it differ? It, it really doesn't like, to be honest with you, like you, it doesn't matter what domain you're in. You must carry the principles of good and fast research, uh, translating insights as though, you know, you need to explain it to an eight-year-old, um, really paying attention to sort of strategy and, 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 and what's where the company is moving and where your department is moving and what your goals are and how the research fits into that, doing the correct research at the right time, um, representing the user in a way that's fair. Um, I work at Spotify right now on some research that examines ag algorithmic impact and potential harm uh, to certain communities. And, you know, I would have done that anywhere. I would have certainly done that at Comcast. And I I could see thinking about that um, in the video game space as well. So it doesn't really change much. I think what does change across them is I, I've leveled up haha, to a, to, I think Spotify at this point is one of the more mature places in terms of understanding what user research and UX research is. Um, if you want to ask me what the difference between those are, it's just really a preference. I think when you see a company list a listing for a user researcher, it typically means they have a pretty advanced understanding and they want you to do many different types of research. And it almost might look like market research, like how do the users feel about this concept? You know, will they buy it? Which is really getting into the market space. If it's right. UX, then you might be really supporting a designer and you're really just constantly, you know, in, in, in concert with a designer. I am a user researcher, but I think Spotify is different than Comcast because the level of maturity of user research is higher. Uh, they're not totally there yet. I think basically it's the balance between product engineering and either user experience or user 
research and and design. Um, I think at Spotify, it's the most evenly dialed. Um, at Zynga, a lot of people are like, what do you do? <laughs> I, it's right. tough to do UX research in games. There's not a ton, although it's certainly growing a lot more um, and has grown. Um, I think at Comcast, there was a little bit more leveled up understanding, but Comcast is also not a tech company. So they are not of the tech ilk. So you have that like old school corporate model. And then we were this tiny like techie <laughs> group within Comcast, which is massive. But their understanding of user research was a little more leveled up. And then at Spotify, um, even more. So I don't think your practices change. I mean, obviously you age and you become better at things and you can have, you have more tools in your toolbox. Um, but I don't think you really change your approach that much. I think what changes is the level of maturity at the organization and, and what you're able to sort of achieve as a result of that. At Zynga, I was just really like catch as catch can, like wherever I could help, whatever I could do. Um, and really stuck in a lot of like market researching methods, like focus groups. Like I would never do a focus group now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you couldn't now physically, but it's just like methodologically, I probably wouldn't do that really now. Um, so I would say the maturity level has shifted and that's really what's changed the job. But no, you got to be on point in the same way at every job that you go to. Thank you for that context. Um, yeah, I mean, going back to the to games specifically, is that in the games industry, UI, UX, and well, excuse me, UI, UX design, and UX yeah. research tend to get all bucketed together sometimes for no no real reason. Which any the UI should be its own thing, user UX design should be its own thing, and user research certainly is absolutely its own thing as well. But sometimes they expect you to wear all those hats at the same time, so yeah. it can be difficult. Yeah, I was just talking to a colleague of ours. Um, from Zynga, who I stayed in contact with. and Is it Lloyd? It's not, but I talk to Lloyd Damn all it. the time. <laughs> that was my first guess. Who, who, who is it, or if it's, you don't mind name? It's Nina. Uh, Nina's oh. last name when we knew her was Desai, so it's not the Nina you're thinking of, but I do still stay in touch with her. But Nina wow. is currently at Gala Games, um, which is a crypto gaming company. And it was started by Eric, who I think was a big, very big deal at Zynga, but I wasn't there for him being a very big deal. But Nina and I were talking about this as well. And she actually, shout out to her, because she explained it better. She was like, the reason that UX and UI get folded together so much um, in, in gaming is because you don't have the same information architecture needs that you might from a website or, and, and TV has information architecture needs in a way that a website does. Um, but a game is, games are so hard to study and they're so hard to make. They're so much more complicated, but so much more fascinating, so rewarding compared to, um, uh, you know, e-commerce at times or like internal tools I work on, or it's really a, a love of intellect as opposed to like a really exciting experience. But I, I think that's true. I think the information architecture of them differs. So what's needed from a researcher in games is different. And I have to tell you, as much as when I was first starting out at Zynga, I was like, they don't understand me and they don't know what I really do. And I have to do market research that made me a better researcher. Cause when I got to Comcast, they were like, can you fire off this? And I just could just go, you know, I was just reliable and scrappy um, and games make you scrappy <laughs> and cats make you silly, but 
Never yeah, mind. somebody somebody decided he's been screaming, so I've been on mute this whole time. But Ghost decided to come in and out. This is the, one of the first times he's actually come out fully on screen while I've been interviewing. Hi, so. Ghost. I think maybe a, that's the ghost Akira was barking at. <laughs> he certainly screams like a ghost sometimes. Does he? I like I like how his tail's passing by. It's like a Muppet show. Yeah. So the my, the joke is at work is that for the longest time my the picture of like I'm, I'm Slack of me is it's my face but then there's ghost tail right in front of my face so it's like a portrait blocked by a cat tail that's what yeah. I was because anytime I'm on Zoom with people like typically that's all they see but I don't I don't even think I don't know if people don't like Akira anymore but they're so used to her she's right now sleeping somewhere but she they're so Akira's, used to her. Akira's your great Dane for context. She is. I'm so sorry. I only have one left. Um, I should be getting another one, though. You're supposed to have multiple great Danes. But Akira is my four-year-old great Dane. Um, and she is a runt at 85 pounds. And, yeah, people are just used to seeing her. I don't know what's going to happen if I get a job non-remotely again. I, I, I think she'll have a major crisis because we're together all day. But yeah, I digress. Yeah. <laughs> um. So early on, well, uh, Zynga wasn't necessarily like your first foray into games either, is that you did some interesting research uh, that involved games that involved Minecraft and Portal. Can you talk about some of that research? Absolutely. So, oh man, I'm so glad you mentioned the Portal research. I never get to talk about that. So that was one, I took a class in what's called spatial cognition, which means like, can you... Uh, it's almost like, can you do calculus, you know, or can you play, um, what's a good game that really requires spatial rotation, Tetris? Um, what else? Uh, what are the shooter games? Uh, I, I used to call no. Call of Duty Black Ops. Yeah. That was any, any, any first person shooter, especially too, requires a lot of spatial <laughs> recognition. P.S. I'm terrible at that, but good at Tetris. Tetris is like the base <laughs> level of spatial rotation, like spatial hey, rotation. Tetris is Tetris is great. I love Tetris. Yeah, me too. I, I used to play it so much that I would dream in it. But anyway, women actually do tend to have a deficit in spatial cognition. There were some evolutionary theories that were debunked um, that claimed that women needed resources to... Um, so essentially women can be more detail oriented rather than navigational because they had to stay behind and kind of keep things afloat at the hut as opposed to going out and hunting. So men kind of, you know, were better at, you know, navigating landscapes and rotating maps in their mind and thinking about where they were in space. Um, but what they've found is that that may be true, but it's produced by the environment and that a lot of times we reinforce that with the type of tools that, or toys, I'm sorry, that we give boys and girls. So we do tend to give boys things that they shoot long range, things that make them think about where they are in space, as opposed to um, little girls often. And I'm probably less so today. Um, we're mostly involved in like caring for things and pound puppies and, and uh, Barbies, which I was huge into, still a fan. But I'm also a fan of Lincoln Logs. So the uh, the person I just interviewed before you, uh, Stephanie Eskander, she was a toy designer. Um, oh, I can't, I can't yeah. listen to that one. Yeah, well, yeah. But we're we're in the future, and and you're you're the star. So continue. Oh, thank you. No worries. I don't need to be. I can I can just hide in the background like ghost. But anyway, um, 
<laughs> the reason I studied portal was because of this idea that you could train people that have some deficit in uh, spatial cognition, um, notably women, uh, to to get to improve in spatial cognitive tasks. And you had this like paper test that you would give them pre and post the experiment that looks like Tetris. It's called Shepard Metzler blocks. Um, and essentially, you know, they just have to rotate these blocks around in space and they give you one, uh, you know, a Tetris like block in one position. And then there's a multiple choice question and you're like, and it's like, what's the same, the same block, but just in a different set of blocks, but in a different position. Long story short, I tried to do an experiment and it's important for me to say that I tried to do an experiment where I had women, uh, a group of women, and then a group of um, people, I guess, that didn't identify, I guess, as female. I, I'm pretty sure it was men at the time. This would have been 2013 or 14. Um, and I, and sure. I, you know, Gal, gals and non-binary pals, as uh, Kenji, J. Kenji Lopez Alt likes to say. Thank you. So gals and non-binary pals, um, you know, s separated really to, and, and there was a difference certainly in the, in the baseline spatial cognition um, scores or the cognitive tasks. And I asked them to just train once a week for 90 minutes playing Portal. Now, having played video games myself, I didn't think this was hard. Um, I did find for the ones that participated that it playing Portal actually did improve their test scores afterwards. Uh, it was distant enough. It was like within an eight-week time frame that practice effects, meaning like the fact that they were just taking the test the second time weren't likely. So we did see some effects. But what was more interesting is that for some reason, a video game became work and it changed the rules of whether or not someone wanted to engage with it. Cause I was like, who wouldn't want to play portal? And a lot of them who dropped out there were like, I'm sorry, I just don't have the time. And I was like, what? <laughs> Make the time. <laughs> My question became really interesting to me. It's like, when does a game become work? And, and next when can you recruit a game for work and still have it be fun? So I'm going to explain this really simply because I wrote a whole, you know, dissertation on it. But essentially, I used Minecraft with a bunch of seventh, eighth, I think six, seventh, eighth graders um, to teach the concepts of ratio and proportion um, and try and understand, like, what about the design of the game keeps it motivating even when you have a lot of work to do um and and in particular like you think people who play games for hours they're, they're very challenging games like people might work all day and then go home and play game well you don't go home anymore you like <laughs> your screen right and then play, I play go, of games yeah yeah i go from bad screen to good screen and there you uh, go Keep i'm currently on bad i'm currently on bad screen and and good screens right behind me yeah, good screen. We'll get some love soon. Don't you worry. Um, but yeah, so essentially I, I used Minecraft to help these students understand what ratio and proportion was. And aside from understanding like how you could design something that's essentially work. And of course, you know this from your experience of working at Zynga. If, if you think about grinding, if you have a core loop that's engaging enough, people will certainly grind, you know, and I think the narrative contributes to that. And there's other things that contribute to that as well. In some cases, in a place like slots, you don't really have, well, that's actually not true. You kind of do have narrative in slots. 
you really do get into the fantasy of the story and the art and sure to walk yeah. it back to walk yeah. it back a little bit because you fired off some game design buzzwords um Ooh, okay <clears throat> you mentioned core loop uh so a core loop refers to what are the most common things that you would do in a game specifically um like if you're taking mario brothers for example you're going to be running and jumping um that would be you know running jumping and then you know beating levels um and defeating enemies as far as like what your core loop is and everything else outside of that are just like other tertiary loops. But um, <clears throat> if you're going to take slots as a core loop, uh, the core loop with slots is spin, like press the spin button or pull the lever. Uh, win or lose, it doesn't matter. It's all the same to me to quote Motorhead. Um, and then, <laughs> you know, and kind of going from there. So, um, but that's, that's the core loop of slots. Um, but yeah, I, said, I, just wanna... I said grind too. Do we need to explain that one? Yes. And grind just means you're playing, you're continuing to play a game, whether or not you enjoy it or not uh, to okay. either chase after a resource or get an achievement of some sort usually. But uh, grinding comes typically from role-playing role playing games or RPGs where people would grind for loot. Um, grind refers to putting, you know, putting an extra grindstone and just doing something you don't necessarily want to do, but you're going to do it anyway because you're chasing after something. So, yeah. Yeah. yes, thank you for uh, for that one as well. So, yeah, you're All the right. expert on explaining that, though. I'm glad you did it, not me. I'd be like, this is, <laughs> grinding is work. It's just work. <laughs> no, well, that's the easiest. I should have just said that. I touche, touche, madam. You, no, you no, no. I like how you explained it. Um, yeah, I, I mean, but that's the whole point, right? Is that I was studying with 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 these games. It's like, what will what are, is there an aspect of the design that will make someone grind just because the game is just that damn good? Now, you could kind of call BS on me because I'm talking about switching from, you know, graduate student people who have life tasks and other things to do, not playing Portal, to um, I asked a bunch of seventh graders if instead of doing fraction worksheets, they wanted to play Minecraft with <laughs> <laughs> hey kids you want sugar yeah <laughs> want some candy like i mean come on but <laughs> i really do and, and qualitatively i do have some cool clips and they're old now because this was 2013 though um, oh god i think my bones just went to dust because i re realized it's 2022 and we're about oh. to hit oh the, the uh, 2013, you know, is almost a decade ago. I'm just like, oh, my bones are aching. Yeah, yeah that made me hurt. I think I got her heartburn from it. I felt another gray hair, like dink. But uh, yeah, so I the students, I, I have some clips of them really realizing what a fraction was. So the quickly, the goal of the the you know what we were doing in Minecraft, and we were in creative mode. They didn't have to face creepers and stuff like that, but they were basically taking buildings that they knew in real life and scaling them into the world of Minecraft and really understanding like what would a block represent in real life and using YouTube to do all that and using the internet to do that, which was just really exactly how we work, right? It's, it's very unlike school, although school has probably evolved since then too. But long story short, I, I remember one student being like, oh, a fraction is a fraction of and you're like yes but but you wouldn't know that from doing rote worksheets of like do your fractions which is yeah. what school was like for most of us 
Yeah, no, that's that's smart. Um, anytime you can um, take the same concept and explain it in a different way so that people have more context about it, usually like will unlock kids' minds. Um, Isn't that yeah, what games, that's what games do, I feel like for everyone. Like they're, they're, they're a context in which you can tinker with causality <laughs> in a way that's safe. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, actually related that. Uh, so we've already touched on some buzzwords of UX previously, specifically machine learning, but um, there's so many important pieces of psychology, sociology, and physiology that come into play in the study of UX research. Um, can you touch on some of the more common ones? Uh, and this is going to be uh, not a trivial thing for me to ask, but can you explain some common ideas like self-determination theory or intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation? Oh, you Googled me. Um, okay. So uh, psychology, I would say that intrinsic motivation probably doesn't come up every day at work. If we're going to touch on psychology, I will just note that biases probably come up the most when you're doing UX research. You have to make sure you don't, that when you're picking up data, you're aware of biases. You can't not pick up biases. You'll pick them up. You just want to reduce the amount of harm they have on the insight you're trying to generate from data. But as far as intrinsic motivation, heck yes, let's talk about that. So <laughs> self-determination theory is a theory put forward by Ed Decci and missing Ryan's first name, and I apologize, in the early 80s. And basically it says that any system, it could be exercise, it could be blogging, it could be any activity that supports three things, your ability to grow your competence in something. You're going to hear this in a good video game or a good user experience. As you grow your competence in it, you level up and you get better and better and better at a, to a certain point. Um, the amount of autonomy you have within that system. So you don't want complete freedom and Minecraft could be dangerous this way because it could be just like a wild blank world. You need to make a game almost in Minecraft. You need to make a, a closed system where there's freedom to choose certain things, but you know, which is, you know, the user wants to have some autonomy to choose. You know, I even think of like selecting a show to watch. You need autonomy, but you need a finite system to do that. And otherwise you turn off the TV and say there's too much on. Um, and then social relatedness, some sense of connectedness to other people. In gaming, I think that's a little easier than thinking about um thinking about you know things like video streaming services but certainly in music streaming services there's you know the the user experience often communicates how many people are listening and what others are listening to and and the news of today right that sense of liveness even though you're in you're not you're not necessarily in a live setting so self-determination theory if those three things are solved competence uh, autonomy and, and your sense of connectedness to others, then you will be intrinsically motivated to engage in that activity. Um, you know, and this is a good pointer for exercise. If, if you kind of solve all those three problems for yourself, then you'll have the natural motivation to do that. Intrinsic motivation is that motivation where you're like, I just like to do it because I like to do it. Um, and, and not necessarily because you're paid to do it or because there's some carrot at the end of it. Um, so I use that theory to understand why Minecraft was designed so well. And it's because it houses those three elements um, that really make it intrinsically motivated. And if you've ever met people who are nine or 10 years old, nice. That looks, like, <laughs> that looks like something I've made once. 
I don't, um, I don't, I don't think you made it. I just pulled it from the internet, but nice. I because you're hey, internet. It. Yeah. And, and you know what, this theory is really great. These guys have a consultancy um, where they help designers design things with the, with that theoretical praxis in mind. And I think it's really good. I think they even have a game consultancy and I think they even came to Zynga. Um, but yeah, a really good theory for explaining things. It, and it's also really good if you do want to start exercising or do something that's good for you and just do it because it is self-determination theory, I think really helps, helps a lot. Uh, so it's Edward, Edward Desi and Richard Ryan, right? Richard Ryan, thank you. Yes. <clears throat> but it's, it's commonly referred to just Desi and Ryan typically, but. Again, because I have Google and you're talking. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. No, it's good to do that because we want to make sure we refer people to the right things. Thank For you. sure. Yeah. Um, and then uh, is there any other fascinating things that kind of live rent free in your head um, when you're doing research as far as like the things that are always in the back of your mind about? Um, obviously, you mentioned biases and, and motivation, but is there anything else that is something that usually comes into it as a factor in doing research? so i'm trying to think about you know things like sociologically i think i think when we do research we do tend to think about generations and 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 people who are you know used to certain experiences but i think i really don't love to pay attention to those types of things like those generational labels and stuff like that when designing good user experiences because to be honest with you you know whether it's my 18 year old nephew or myself if if the ui's crap and and stuff breaks down unless i really want the thing thinking in particular about shopping like unless i really want it you're probably <laughs> going to lose me if the if the ux is junk um, so I, I think, I think there's like willingness to accept certain experiences and there's trends that are really important. And I think looking at younger generations is really awesome because they're so innovative because their hearts are open, but I, I don't like to think about designing good products that way because humans are sort of all the same physiologically. I think, you know, some of the things I told you were that were so important were things like, um, you know, a five-year-old can't drag and drop easily. Um, I forget the name of the law. It might be Miller's law, Nick. And I know you've got Google handy, but it's like, all right, ah, I, I, I might have to uh, follow up, but it's basically a law of like how, how far away something can be for someone to locate the object, basically like an IA sort of law of like, it might not be Miller's law. I can't remember exactly what it is right now, but it is about like, you know, eye space and, 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 and stuff like that. And, and like how people focus on things and, and, and not putting things in people's periphery. I do believe. Okay. Um, I get wrong on that actually. <laughs> yeah, it says Miller, Miller's law. Part of his part of his theory of communication was formulated by George A. Miller, professor of psychology at Princeton University. It instructs us to suspend judgment about what someone is saying, so that we can first understand them without in, imbuing their message with our own personal interpretations. Ooh, that's interesting because that's related to biases for sure. Um, but I don't. That's not exactly what I'm talking about. But I, I'll I'll find it for you and certainly follow up. Um, I also know that, you know, certainly from gaming and then and then designing remote controls at Comcast later, um, just thinking about, um, you know, um, 
finger placement, keypad placement, D-pad placement, like thinking about um, keeping things in germane spaces or common spaces so users don't have to look down and it does disrupt things. So there's physical things like that that are really fascinating um, that I, I definitely got to tinker with and, and could have opportunities to do that at Spotify as well, but I'm just not working in those products. I know Spotify is branching out into like car devices and, and, and uh, spoken language devices and stuff like that. So um, there's a lot of that physical and physiological actually is what you called it inputs to UX as well that, that are a cool part of the career that could be explored. Awesome. Um, <clears throat> are you, I, I'm on a running theme now of always having a hard left turn uh, towards no the end, end of the conversation, but I'm going to give you a hard left turn because I think it's important to talk about. Um, okay, so I'm really, I can swing. <laughs> You're from Italy, you can swing. I, okay. No, Philly, I said Philly. Oh, I thought you said Italy. Sorry. I cut off for a second. <laughs> I'm not from Italy. I'm from Philly for sure. <laughs> I was like, what are, what are you not telling me, Maria? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm definitely from Philly. You know that. Because <laughs> that's the first thing you tell me every time. Oh, I see you. absolutely. Well, I have to. I have to excuse myself first, as I I'm from Philly. <laughs> excuse whatever brash thing comes out of my mouth. <laughs> um, so 2020 was a year of great turmoil for everyone involved, um, but there's also been a lot of positive growth that came and change that came from it. Um, and when it comes to being a UX research professional. Talk to me about your mission when it comes to racial equality and representation and inclusion, especially at a huge company like Spotify or Comcast. So I got to give the typical white woman answer here, but I feel like it was necessary for me to do a lot of. Ex so I've been doing a lot of examination and, and self work. I think. I think in particular, those in the dominant culture, those who benefit from the way culture is structured right now. Are, are look with blind eyes when they think they know what's best. Um, so I've done a lot of work rethinking things in terms of harm, rethinking, you know, my automaticness to accept or design things that might reinforce harm just because I was kind of told that's the right way of doing things. It's led to a lot of questioning both spiritually and ethically about why I'm involved with what I'm involved with and what I have to unlearn and listen to. Um, and that's led me from everywhere to thinking about more equity-centered design, thinking about algorithmic harm, but also just developing a spiritual practice of mindfulness <laughs> and, and just really like learning to listen and also just even at the level of professionalism, like I've had a great career. Yes, there's hard work in there. Yes, but there's a lot of lottery and a lot of luck. So I've also just really taken to expanding my network. I was talking to a young professional today who's trying to enter the network. And I'm really careful about you know, making sure that I offer opportunity to people who typically probably would be passed over or harmed by the system as it currently exists um, and really offer the best that I can, which aside from like literal money <laughs> paying people, which is one way to do it. Also just giving them the keys to the kingdom that I've had as best that I can um, right. and, and really sharing my network. That's awesome. Um so the joy of being, as you mentioned, the joy of being a professional with a job is paying it forward with the younger generation, helping mentor them. Um, what have been some of the most rewarding interactions you've had with young UX professionals? 
oh, I think that they're so much smarter. Um, <laughs> actually, I think what I like the best is, and I really preach this at Spotify a lot as we are turning to make internal tools for data scientists and machine learning engineers. Those terms that are seen as jobs right now, like a machine learning engineer or a data science are data scientist are quickly becoming domain expertise that people gain while they're at work. In a very traditionally sort of hackery way, I think younger generations come in and it may be because of the, the failure of the academic institution to really provide preparedness. I just, younger UX researchers are like willing to play an R and willing to figure out, you know, how do we, how do we scrape Twitter for this? And how do we, you know, they just have that sense of like they're boundaryless in terms of like they'll, they'll, they'll try anything. And, but they're also very respectful and honorable. So I get a lot of respect for my experience, but at the same time, they'll like break down all those boundaries and try new things and bring data science into UX research and bring machine learning into UX research and bring qualitative methods out into machine learning and bring qualitative methods out into the field as well. So I just see a real melting of barriers, which reflects the younger generation to me in general, but also just makes them more, more, Nick is saying, no, he disagrees. No, no, no. I'm not shaking. I'm shaking my head. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I wasn't disagreeing. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, I, I just, I just, <laughs> well, apparently, apparently I was interrupting. I mean, yeah, I, yeah, you're cool. You're cool. I just didn't know if you disagreed. I kind of wanted to hear if you've had a different experience, but my most rewarding experiences, just to answer the question succinctly with younger UX researchers or even designers is that like they're willing, it's the same, It's almost like playing Minecraft with them again. It's like, okay, we need an escalator for this. Let's go grab the knowledge for that. Right. And they recruit the knowledge necessary. Certainly you can't be like, oh, let's go grab machine learning for this. This, that takes domain expertise and that takes a deeper you know, set of knowledge, but I, I just don't, I just, you know, and it might be youth, but I see a lot of fearlessness, but I also see a lot of like, if that's necessary, I'm going to bring it in and I'm going to ignore what's traditionally said that this person does. Um, so I really, th th that's been really fruitful for me. And also like a good reminder and humbling reminder that like, they're going to outpace me in skill. So I need to become more of a mentor and more supportive and, and 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 just become the wise old shifu. <laughs> wow, <laughs> I can't believe you. Oh wow, I can't believe you just said that. <laughs> Not good. No, no, no. no. I've, I've never heard that before. That's okay. I'm just I'm I'm amused that you that you mix shifu with she. I'm like that's <laughs> that's pretty good. Um. So to touch on the uh, mentoring young UX professionals, I have not mentored young UX professionals because I'm not a UX designer, but I am a game designer. Mm -hmm. um, and you've actually extended an, oppor an opportunity to me personally. Um, you sent a young uh, design, you. yeah. aspiring game designer towards me, mm -hmm. um, a BIPOC youth. Um, thank you again for that opportunity um, just to mentor him. Um, thank you. I mean, honestly, like at a bare minimum, I'm happy that I can give them just the, the basics of 
there's really nothing holding you back from making a game. And in fact, if you're listening to this, there isn't much stopping you from making a game. Um, if you're really passionate about making games, uh, Unity, just go download Unity and go look for you know how to make games on YouTube. And Unity's free. <clears throat> you can start making games uh, just by looking at YouTube tutorials on on um, about how to how to make stuff in Unity. Like you can make a soccer game in under four hours in Unity. Um, that's how quickly you can go from I don't know anything about Unity to I just kicked a 3D object into a goal and it fired off fireworks and, and confetti. Yeah. You can go that fast in Unity if you care that much. Um, so that's just a PSA for anybody watching. If you're actually passionate about games and passionate about game design, um, there's not a lot stopping stopping from you. You really can. And especially in this day and age, you can really Google stuff, listen to podcasts, watch YouTube videos. Like there's so much information and research out there. And if it's uh, behind a paywall, you know, steal it no i'm just kidding uh, yeah no reach out to one of us pay yes for, i'll pay for it for you there you go um but yeah no i i'm 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 hopeful about our youth today despite the impending doom that is climate change and everything else and just turmoil in general yeah. but <clears throat> um i think this this generation that's coming up there's there's a lot of weirdos there's and anytime there's weirdos in a, in a generation, I know I know we'll be okay because yes. every generation every generation needs weirdos because those, those yes. are the people that make the biggest difference. Preach, so. stay weird. <laughs> yeah, look, 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 look weird. being weird got us. I mean, I, I remember arriving. Um, you know, my first time living in the Bay Area was 2000 to like 2002, um, and 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 you know, certainly there was always nerd culture in the Bay Area <laughs> and computing culture is very strong in the Bay Area. But when I got back again in, in 2014, it was like, oh, nerds rule. That's over now. <laughs> yep. Welcome back, Maria. Would you like to see my cool computer? It's for Yasham. Yasham. Show like yeah, yeah, it kind of makes me miss the Bay Area. You know, I was a big fan of Oakland because it's like Philadelphia. I say as I'm wearing a Seattle, the Seattle Kraken hat. But oh, it's that's hockey, right, so that's right, right. You have fine. new loves. That's okay. That's okay. Yeah, I was never a huge fan of the San Jose Sharks, uh, and I know I'll probably get flamed in the comments for saying that. But I, I picked a new hockey team. I'm I'm on the Kraken, but I'm a diehard A's fan. So East Bay till are. I die. Yes. It was one of my favorite games I ever went to. There was a there was a race of mascots between I think Raleigh Fingers might have been who else? Raleigh Ricky Henderson, Ricky yeah. Henderson, and, and Dennis Eckersley. I think Raleigh Fingers won. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always so happy. When, I'm always happy when Eckersley wins. But I took I took my dad to the Oakland Coliseum to see them play the Blue Jays, and two things happened. One thing, my dad was like, "This is like being home," and I was like, "Yeah, it is." <laughs> And then the other thing that happened was he being a Philadelphian, he started getting itchy next to a guy who was wearing a blue Jays hat. And I was like, dad, they don't, they don't do that here. <laughs> You're allowed to wear the other team's gear. It's totally fine. It's California. Well, and he was unless, like, okay. I was like, yeah, pull out with that. <laughs> unless you're Yankees and then get out of my stadium. Oh, okay. Oh, they get mad at that. Yeah. No, I kind of, I pulled him off of that. I was like, yeah, you can't, you can't diss somebody wearing a blue Jays hat. That's okay here. That's acceptable. <laughs> And we, we have a loose treaty with Los Angeles because LA hates the Giants as much as the A's do. So, okay. but so it's, anyway, it's a joint adventure. Yeah. 
<laughs> All right. Sorry, we're going we're going off at a tangents now, and I want to keep us on track. Um, okay. but actually, you know what? I'm going to end on a final tangent. How about that? Yeah, I love tangents. Last question. Okay. Are ready. you ready for this? Yes. It's, it's it's very serious. Okay. Why is Philadelphia Philadelphia the best city in the United States? Oh my gosh! Because who doesn't love an underdog now, y'all? Come on. But seriously, why yeah. why is Philadelphia great? Beyond the history, like why is Philadelphia awesome, and why should people visit there? Uh, the food is incredible. Um, I would recommend that you recruit a Sherpa. Um, because like most wonderful cities in the United States where there isn't immense wealth, uh, sort of driving a, a, a Disney land or world like experience, uh, you know, it could, it could, it could get scary, <laughs> um, especially if you don't know where to go. But of course, uh, in general, it's not like that, but I think the food, um, the warmth of the people, the people are really proud to be from there and also just the scrappiness just just the the public art we also have like the the largest public mural arts program in the country um second only to like berlin in the world we have some great public art um and the suffering just creates incredible art i think too <laughs> but also because it's really it's really not a white city that has it has so much um so much to offer in terms of being truly American and, and, and truly a great place uh, where, where people um, are happy to show the aspects of their culture that is not Philadelphian and then also add in the Philadelphian layer. So I'm available for anyone who needs a Sherpa. That's awesome. Um, yeah. It's funny you mentioned Berlin because the thing that I remember so much about Berlin is just like the amount of art graffiti and everything else that's all around Berlin. It's, it's, it's astounding. So yeah. <laughs> In Philadelphia, they actually pay people to do it. That's how much they love it. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Maria. I could talk to you for like another three hours yeah, we as usual. Do about six. <laughs> but I'm but I'm trying to keep us on focus about UX stuff. But um, yeah. thank you. Thank you so much for talking with me because um, UX can be such a black block black box for, for some people. They might hear the general idea about it, but they might actually know what UX is involved. Um, so thank you so much for the for the uh, opportunity to chat with you. I had a lot of fun. Absolutely. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Uh, is there anything that you'd like to plug, perhaps? Uh, or you just, I think my favorite response to, from anything is my friend Izzy just, just saying, don't contact me. Don't bug me. No, I don't want to plug anything. Oh, oh uh, wow. So I would love to offer advice to everybody, but I get a lot of requests on LinkedIn and, and people who want to offer things. But I do want to say... That certainly uh, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, and in general, like you'll find my name next to recordings about how to get involved in UX research, how to get into the industry. Um, I just did a talk actually last Friday. We did a Twitter space uh, with my good colleague, um, Reggie, who is head of UX research at Twitter. Um, so there's a lot of pre-recorded material. Um, but I mean, worse comes to worse. You can, you can reach out to me. I'll try my best to get back to you um, and, and get you linked into that that network. Uh, and I just used the verb to describe the software. So <laughs> uh, I think there might be something to that name or, or something else. Wasn't but... there, wasn't there a joke, a family guy joke once where he's like, he said the title. <laughs> <laughs> he said the thing he said. that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. All right, Maria. Thank you thank so much you. for your time. Thanks, Nick. Everybody else. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And we'll catch you next time.